long-forgotten stories, now lie hidden in the maze of movie history and novelizations. They made film history, these lost, forgotten silent films. The eclipsed sources of famous motion pictures, briefly brought to life on screen before fading away. Their scripts and books gathering the dust in libraries and archives. These stories that once spoke with the power of the moving image, we decided to resurrect through the power of audio, giving them a new voice. A voice called the speaking screen. The story of today is a long-lost film. Legendary in hours. This film is London After Midnight, directed by Todd Browning, released in 1928. He is famous for his horror films like Dracula in 1931, with star Bela Lugosi, and the cult film Fricks in 1932. London After Midnight starred the actor Lon Chaney, the Man of Thousand Faces, a regular collaborator of Browning. It is said that the last copy of the film burned in a fire at the MGM studio in 1965. London After Midnight is a horror thriller mystery story. Our audio is adapted from the novelization of the film by author Mary Coolidge Rusk, published in 1928. This is The Speaking Screen. Chapter 1, Balfour House Many generations of Balfours had lived, married, and died in Balfour House. Its foundations were led long before the time of Charles II. One after another of its owners had, at various times, sought to develop, enlarge, simplify, or otherwise alter its original plan, according to their varying finances and individual ideas. The result was an architectural abnormality as weird and mystifying as stories of misfortune connected with the Balfour family. These current tales suggested a strange fatality from which its successive generation seemed powerless to escape. At the time little Lucy Balfour and her brother Harry were removed from the gloomy habitation at their early childhood to the more cheerful atmosphere of Hamlin House. Their father, Roger Balfour, a quiet, studious man had just been found dead. An empty revolver near his outstretched hand, a bullet wound in his temple. Financial trouble and melancholia were acknowledged causes for the rash act, and every effort was made by dead man's friend and neighbor, 
Sir James Hamlin to blot its memory from the minds of the two children and to settle the estate quietly and without delay. So successfully was this accomplished that Balfour House, long associated with tragedy, soon became shunned and isolated. The once familiar figure of Roger Balfour, wrapped in a long black cloak, no longer traversed the rumbling walks that threaded the neglected gardens. The sound of his weary, pacing footsteps echoed no more from the sonorous flags that flanked the lonely terrace. From the tall, gaunt, kindly gentleman who for years had mourned the loss of fair-haired young mother of his children, lay beside her in the dark recesses of the mausoleum where rested the bones of his ancestors. With scrupulous regard for detail, Sir James saw to it that every known wish of his diseased friend was complied with. No will was found, and when the estate was settled, no funds remained for the maintenance of the two children, nor for the upkeep for the old house and extensive, unprofitable grounds of which young Harry was now the owner. The magnanimous generosity of the elderly bachelor, Sir James Hamlin, won for him unstinted praise. He opened his door to the orphaned children and announced himself their guardian. Balfour House, he declared, would remain closed unless a tenant appeared who would accept it unconditionally without promise of repairs. He refused to consider a sale of the property, announcing that he would personally supervise and finance the education of the children and find for Harry, when the latter became of age, a bride whose income would be sufficient to rehabilitate the estate he had inherited. Sir James kept his word. Lucy, who was thirteen at the time of her father's death, developed into a charming and cultured young woman. Harry, less two years her senior, she idolized and looked after with almost maternal solicitude. The two were companionable, though Harry, like his father, was quiet and given to feats of brooding. On such occasions, he was apt to revert to circumstances antedating their father's death and speculate upon the singular generosity of their benefactor. For Harry possessed a vague and inexplicable antipathy towards Sir James, which, as the years passed, did not lessen. The baronet, for his part, manifested an almost paternal interest in the young man, and there were those who thought he would one day make Harry his heir. Connected, the two great estates would have an enormous value, and the Hamlin wealth will undoubtedly ample for their upkeep. But Balfour House was now failing into a serious state of decay. Its windows were broken.
shutters where there were any were loose and flapping. The desolate terrace fronted on a broad lawn, dark with forest trees on the side sloping away to the gardens where for years never a flower had grown. There were crumbling stone walls and overgrown harbors, their rotted wood frames falling apart, and fragments of broken statuary looming here and there like spectral from another world. Within the house, conditions were a little better through the corridors and narrow passageways. From these flowed an endless retreat set in out-of-the-way corners, as if to offer sanctuary to some harassed inmate fleeing from an advancing foe. Most of the rooms were dark and massively furnished, with deep, mysterious recesses and heavy curtains. From the west windows, one could look away from miles over the surrounding country. To the east, one saw the ruined gardens, then a grove, and at its left, the hill where slept in their gloomy sepulchre those men's and women whose voices and footsteps has one resound through the confine of their eerie dwelling. There was one room more dismal, more forbidding than any of the others. It had four long slits of windows like thrones and four narrow doors between which were cupboards sunk in the walls some with doors that would not open, others with doors that would not shut. At the end of the room were four broad steps. Mounting these one came to a door strongly secured by bolts and padlocks. The bolts were firm and the keys to the padlocks had been lost. Many years had passed since the last curious person had crossed that threshold to investigate the room that lay beyond. It was a secret chamber in which, it was said, a beautiful young woman had met a horrible death. Always on the eve of an impending tragedy, her unhappy spirit returned to the scene of her suffering, there to walk restlessly to and fro, sobbing and moaning through the darkest hours of the night. The last time anyone claimed to have heard the ghostly footsteps with their accompaniments of sobs was the night Roger Balfour died. From the lawn without, it was possible, if one knew which tree to climb, to glimpse the interior of this secret place of imprisonment, so reeking with tragedy and supernatural manifestations. The room was large and irregular, and it was reached by means of a narrow, circular stairway ascending from the padlocked door below. 
In the east wing of this dilapidated, abandoned mansion was the picture gallery. It was wainscoted and gloomy, like all the rest of the house. Long rows of deaf and gone balfours locked down from the carved walls. There were knights in armor, ladies in ruffles and lace, bishops with mitre and crozier, judges in gown and wig. Among the imposing array was a life-size painting of that unfortunate young woman who had lost her life in that mysterious secret chamber. She was dark-haired, dark-eyed, with oval face of extreme pallor, and there was in her attitude some strongly suggestive of flight and unrest, as if she found her companion uncongenial and longed for escape. But she was haunty and beautiful, and arrayed in sweeping dark draperies not of the period, but designed, apparently, by the artist to set off the graceful, svelte form and enhance the mystic beauty of those fathomless dark eyes. The library in the West Wing also had such windows. It was a square room at the left of the main entrance hall, which ran from north to south, completely dividing the structure. Directly over this wing was a great clock tower from which, in days past, the hours rang dismally enough during the day, but tolled like a knell in the dead of night. For years, the clock had been silent. Bats were congregated in the tower, and birds of ill omen perched on its ledge while clustering ivy almost obscured the face of the timepiece that had once looked placidly out over the countryside from those old grey walls that had fought the element for so many centuries. Such was Balfour House in the outskirts of London when young Harry Balfour came home from school and announced to his guardian, Sir James Hamlin, that he wished the place reopened. This, Sir James declared, was impossible. Such an act would involve too great a cost, he argued, and to Harry's surprise and consternation, he submitted figures covering the amount which the baronet had already expended on the education and maintenance of himself and his sister Lucy. Item by item, Harry went over the list, the frown deepening between his brows as he did so. Then, when he finished and replaced the papers on Sir Jem's desk, before which the baronet was sitting, and stood facing him. I will repay every penny of it, sir. How? I don't know how but I will never be content until I have repaid all of the amount for which you claim I am now in your debt. Lad, I do not make any claim against you. 
I merely wanted to convince you that I could not afford any further outlay at this present time. What I have done has been done gladly, for your dear father's sake. I, as well as you, would like to see Balfour House restored and the estate improved. But we will have to wait, I fear, for a wealthy tenant, or until you have found a wealthy bride. Never marry on such conditions. I do not choose to sue for a lady's hand in the role of a beggar. I propose to live in my father's house and to earn money in some way to wipe out my obligation to you, sir. I assure you, Harry, I do not look upon it as an obligation. But here is a proposition. If it will make you happier of mind, I am quite willing to place the matter upon a business basis. You are of age now and can mortgage the estate to me for a sum somewhat in excess of independent footing you desire. You will have a little capital on hand to go to America or Australia, and in time, if you are successful, you can redeem the mortgage. And if I am not successful? I would foreclose. Then deed the property to your sister Lucy. The devil you would. She would never accept it. I think she would, Harry. I think she would. Sir James' confidence of Lucy's willingness to accept such a gift only angered Harry the more. His next words were an opened defiance. I disagree with you, sir. And if you think I would assent to the proposition you have just made, Sir James, you have formed a wrong estimate of my character. I'm not forgetful of the fact that I am a Balfour. I propose to live in Balfour House, come what may. I was born there, I shall die there. I will not mortgage away my birthright. I'm not appreciative of all that you have done for my sister and when we were too young to do for ourselves. But now, I am the head of our family. Balfour House must be my home. Lucy must come with me. It was not the first time the Balfour will had pitted itself against the equally inflexible will of a Hamlin. For years Sir James had found it difficult to control Harry. Lucy had always been tractable. Harry never. The baronet made one more effort. Suppose I buy the property outright, Harry. Of course, in its present condition, it is not a good investment, but I might pay you a fair sum, less the amount you insist you owe me. And later, as I said before, I will and bequeath it to your sister. Harry's dark eyes, so like those of his mysterious relative, who haunted the secret chamber at Balfour's house, looked fiercely into the pale blue orbs of his benefactor as if to read his soul. So, and in the meantime, Lucy will continue to live with me at Hamlin House. She is very happy here. I will see that she continues to be happy. For a moment, the young man remained silent. 
It was his nature to consider problems from all angles. Now he waked the proposition before him, calmly, sternly, relentlessly. Once his decision was made, it would be inalterable. Knowing this, Sir James sat in equal silence and waited. At length, the answer came. No. It was clear. The speaker looked not alike a young crusader, standing tall and slender, the light of high resolve and noble purpose illumining his delicate features. He had made his choice and was ready to face whatever fate had in store for him. It would be treason. The betrayal of a trust. I owe it to my sister, to my father, and to myself as a successor to do what I can to uphold the family name, its honour, and its house. So long as I live, the Balfour estate shall not revert to other hands. There was nothing more to say. The baronet seemed scarcely to have heard. Sir James was still sitting in the same tranquil posture he had maintained throughout the interview. But whereas he had previously looked state-facedly into Harry's face, he now gazed off into space, his pale eyes expressionless, his countenance a mask for any emotion he may have felt. For a moment there was silence. Then the older man spoke. This decision of yours is final. Final. Another interval of silence, then Harry pulled himself to feet. Stop a bit, Hibbs. Nearing the door of his suite, Harry encountered a ruddy-faced, bespectacled young man about his age. It was Jerry Hibbs, Sir James Hamlin's secretary an excitable, pedagogical individual for whom Harry had small liking. They seldom conversed together, but now, at the sight of the secretary, Harry was suddenly reminded that here was another person with whom he must have a serious interview. Come into my room. There's something I want to say to you. Together they entered the room. Ten minutes later, Hibbs emerged. His naturally ruddy face was crimson. His light hair was tousled where he had nervously run his fingers through it, as was his habit when agitated. He had removed his spectacles, and his dark blue eyes appeared almost black with excitement. He was angry, more angry than he had ever believed it, it was possible for him to be. He clinched and unclenched his white, shapely hands, and ground his teeth together as he strode down the corridor. Damn him! Who the devil does he think he is? Hasn't a penny to his name, the blooming beggar! I'll... 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 By gad, I'll do something desperate! Bah, the house! Bah! A fine place of mystery, shadowed by tragedy! He's courting disaster if he goes there, mark my words!
And that, folks, was the first chapter of London After Midnight. Eager to know the rest of the story? Watch out for Chapter 2, Another Mystery. The episode was performed for you by Peter Revel Walsh and Leo Elso. This was our broadcast, The Speaking Screen. <laughs>